0: Hi, this is Robert Furrell and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of scripture. Our desire is to know what God's word says so we can know what to believe. Approaching the Word of God to find out what the truth is rather than having a confirmation bias. Rather than approaching Scripture to back up what I already believe. That's almost a sure way to be wrong at some point. You might believe things are right and get confirmation for it, but you want to search the Scriptures to find the things that are true, like the Bereans did. And so our desire today is to take questions and look at them through the lens of Scripture, giving the best possible answer that we can. Now, we've been struggling with a question the last couple of weeks, does God hate people? Does God love the sinner? That's the question. And we talked about it last week in the beginning, but by the time we were done, it seemed that there were more questions there than, than there were answers, and I found myself questioning a couple of passages. It's become popular for people to say that God doesn't love the sinner and hate the sin. That's been a statement that people have made forever. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. But instead they'll say that God hates the sinner. Is that true? Now there are passages in the Bible that tell us that God is love. Like 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And if he is love, then he's going to operate in love towards us. And that's the word agape, by the way. And then we're told in John 3.16 that God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. That's the word agape, which is the unconditional love, the choice to love someone. And then we have Romans 5.8, which is the verse that got me thinking last week. After our Q&A, my wife brought up this passage. And I knew I had to dive into it more. And then after church, I talked to someone else that gave me a little bit more insight into the Old Testament word for hate. So in Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrated his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That verse tells us right there, yes, he does love the sinner and he hates the sin. When someone makes that statement, and again, it's very popular for people to say that God, that that statement isn't true, but that statement is extremely biblical. I always find it amazing when I find that what people criticize to be incredibly biblical, like when they say um, that the Bible never says to receive Jesus to be saved, when in John 1:12 it says, as many as receive him, he gives them the right to become a child of God to those who have called on his name. It is very biblical to receive Jesus and very biblical to give altar calls. But here it's very biblical to say that God loves the sinner. The Greek word for love in all of these passages, John 4 John 3:16, Romans 58 is the word agape. And again, agape is the decision to love, the unconditional love. It's not talking about feelings. That's another word that talks about it. And so the, the, the truth about agape love, love suffers long, is kind, love doesn't envy, love doesn't parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's all true about God towards me and towards the sinner. God loves them and wants to see them come to the knowledge of the truth. So, what do we make of passages in the Old Testament like Psalms 11.5? The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And so, you look at that and you think, well, if God loves the sinner, why is he saying that his soul hates them? Well, the word for hate here can also be have become his enemy. So, they didn't start off being enemies of God. Like any other child who was born, they are not an enemy of God. They have a sin nature, but they haven't done the things that would make them an enemy yet. The Lord tests the righteous, the Bible says, but the wicked and the one he, who loves violence, his soul hates. So, the one who became wicked, the one who loves violence, and you might say, that's in our sin nature. All of us become wicked, and all of us love violence, yes, but if we receive Christ, then all of those things are forgiven, and God loves all of us. That's what the Bible says, God so loved the world. There's another passage in Hosea 9.15 where we get the clue that God begins to hate people, that he begins they begin to be his enemy. This is to to Ephraim, who had been called by God. They were Israel. And in Hosea 9.15, it says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them because of their evil deeds. I will drive them out before my house, and I will love them no more. All of their princes are rebellious. So they had become altogether rebellious and turned their back upon God. And like in the New Testament, where the scribes and Pharisees could blaspheme the Holy Spirit and not be able to repent, so that is for them here. God hated them in Gilgal because it was in Gilgal that they had done their deeds. Now, love and hatred are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And this is something that I think is really important for us to understand. And I used this analogy last week, but I think it's very powerful. And that is that a person can have a child whom they love. And that child could do something hideous, like murder someone. And the parent could say, they're my child and I love them, but I hate who or what they have become and that is very true. They hate who they are in that they are murderous, but they love them because they are their child. It's been said that indifference is the opposite of love, but we get the idea that if you hate someone, you can't love them, and if you love someone, you can't hate them, but as a parent, you know that that could be true. And God, who is our God who creates us, loves us, and can hate who someone becomes or what they become. And I think that that's really, really important to understand, especially that this word for hate could also be made an enemy. They have become an enemy. So you could be an enemy of God today, but God could forgive you. We see more of God-loving sinners when God invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. and says the Son of Man came to seek and save sinners, and salvation has come to this house today. Or the woman who cried, wept at the feet of Jesus, who was a prostitute or a loose woman at best, and she wiped the feet, his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, "Who loves more the one who's forgiven much or the one who's been forgiven little?" And then he forgave her sins. He showed his compassion and love on them. We see it clearly in Paul, who who hate who is complicit in the in the killing of Stephen, who cast his lots towards Christians being killed, who pursued them to other cities, and yet God called him, chose him, and loved him. It is true to say God loves the sinner but hates the sin. That is a true statement. No matter how many videos you might see where someone says otherwise or how many pastors might say it from the pulpit, that it's not true. It is true to say that. Now, is there a way that God's wrath is on the sinner that hasn't come to repentance? Yes. And is there a way in which God hates all who do iniquity? Yes, but is there a way that God loves them while at the same time he hates them? That's biblical. The Bible says that, again, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we can't say that someone who is in sin is outside of the love of God. Think of another passage, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that can, and that passage in Romans is so powerful because it lists all of these things that cannot separate us from God's love. God loves sinners. God loves people. Now, it's good to have you guys here. Good to see you checking in. If you have a question, then you can join us and ask a question by going to the comment section, writing the word question first, or Q, and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times to make sure that it makes sense. And then put a reference there so we can look it up and we'll see if we can't work our way through it. It might even take us a couple weeks to work our way through a question uh, like this concept, um, does God does God, love sinners? Does God love people who are involved in sin? And this is a good, that might be a good example for us of how we can take something that looks really difficult on the on the surface, but then you work your way through it and you see clearly what the Bible has to say. That's important for us to do. Sometimes you got to get things, I call it, into the cooker and let it cook for a while to be able to figure it out. And I don't mind saying, let me think on something for a while. All right, so uh, we have a question from fact Check These Hands about a previous sermon. Um, no, no. Uh, about a Calvary Chapel pastor. So let me read what the question is, and then we'll figure it out, all right? Uh, So again, good to have you guys here. So fact check these hands, says, a Calvary Chapel pastor did a sermon last Sunday on John 9. He mentioned that those who believe in works-based salvation are blaspheming God, are not born again. Your thoughts? All right, so um, yeah, let's think this through. So, John 9, let me just go and take a look at uh, what John 9 is. So, um, man born blind receives the sight. Uh, The Pharisees' excommunication of the man healed. Okay, so, yeah, they excommunicate him and then Jesus goes and finds him and Jesus reveals to him that he's the Messiah. Great section of scripture. So, this is the man who's born blind who receives the sight. Um, John chapter nine. So it's very, very powerful. Um, those who believe in works-based salvation. So who would it be who believes in works-based salvation? Uh, it would be it would be those who believe in baptismal regeneration, that the miracle of salvation, and this is their words, that the miracle of salvation happens when someone when when someone's baptized, That believing doesn't mean anything. It's when you're baptized that the miracle of salvation happens, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit is given. Um, that's a work-based salvation. Uh, speaking in tongues. We talked about this in our study last week. There are churches that teach that if you, that tongues is the evidence, and you are not saved if you're not speaking in tongues. That would be a work-based um, system for salvation. Uh, you could have in the Catholic Church, if people are doing works to be saved— instead of trusting by faith in Christ. And there are, are many genuine Christians in the Catholic Church who have trusted in Christ, but you've gotta be careful that they're not leaning on, that you're not leaning on, I was baptized, I keep, I've keep i kept this sacrament, that sacrament, and so now I'm saved, or I'm, I'm saved by receiving communion, which some Catholics believe. That would be a worked-based religion. Now, he um, this Calvary Chapel pastor said that it was blasphemy. Uh, and blasphemy is a pretty broad term. And I... I, and, and I, I, I I'm going to refrain from saying whether or not I think it's blasphemy. I, I would say... Um, I mean, the person, what they're teaching is a comfort in being baptized that you're saved. So I, I knew someone, a family member, that had been in the Church of Christ, which teaches baptismal regeneration. And uh, we were talking about Jesus, and he said, Jesus isn't God, he's the Son of God. Now, it's not uncommon for Christians to have that misconception. And so, I was discussing with him how the Bible calls the Son of God, God. I was showing him Hebrews chapter 1 and a few other passages, just to get him to see that Jesus is God. But in the midst of talking about that, I realized that he had not really made a commitment to Christ. That he'd been baptized, but they had never genuinely got saved. And that I needed to do more than just try to persuade him that Jesus was God, I needed to try to bring him to faith in Christ because he thought he was saved because he'd been baptized. And that's the danger of work-based religions. People think that they're okay because they're baptized, because they speak in tongues, because they have kept sacraments, or whatever, because you keep the law. Whatever else the work based religion is, it creates false disciples. They think they're okay when they're not, when the only way to really be saved is by having faith and truth in Christ. Um, And yeah, someone who's putting their trust in some work, if they're like, I'm saved because I was baptized, or I'm saved because I knock on doors, or I'm saved because then that's not Christ. That's not the blood of Christ. That's not the cross. That's not the work God did. Now, if you want to say, because of what Jesus did on the cross, now I want to do what he wants me to do, and so I get baptized. Once I become a Christian, I am now compelled to be baptized. That's fine. Doesn't mean every Christian is going to be baptized. But that the majority are going to be and should be. Yes, that's good. So um, that if... if if someone believes that they are saved by a work that will not save them. That is genuinely true. Now, what if somebody believes in a work and believes in faith, by faith, by trusting in Christ? Well, God's going to have to be the one who makes the decision there. But I would always caution people to not be caught up in a place where you think that there's some work that you can do. We are saved by faith through grace. It We're saved by grace through faith, it is a gift of God, not of any works, lest anyone should boast. And uh, we should be careful with uh, the way we interact with someone who believes that they are, um, that you can do some kind of a work to be saved. All right. So thank you. Fact check these hands. I appreciate you and appreciate your question. Uh, and um, blasphemy, I don't know. I, I, I consider blasphemy to be like this really, really, really bad sin and don't like to throw the word around a lot. That doesn't mean it doesn't fit, okay? Um, so we have a question from Jari. Um, how can we see distinct stars in a young universe if the universe is older than we think? It is possible for life out there at some point in the past, present, and future, we, we will come colonize other, and I think it got cut off, Jari. Um, so, we're asking the question about what we see with stars in starlight. Um, so, the evidence of the universe towards someone looking at it would be that it is older. Wh- why would I say that? Because when you're looking at a star that is 250 light years away that means it's taken 250 years for that light and and we would say really it's like 250,000 light years away. It's taken 250,000 light years for that light to reach earth and light is like a record. It holds what happened. So when we look at the sun we see the sun seven minutes ago because it takes that long for the light to get to the earth. So when we see the light sun reflecting off of a a surface, that light left the sun seven minutes before that. And so if something is 100,000 light years away and we're seeing the light from it, then they would say that, that they're looking in it and they might see a flare on a star or they might see a planet go behind or, or they might see, the planets aren't, aren't a good uh, argument for that because they're much, much closer, but they might see a nebula and something happening in the nebula and when they see something like that, then that's light that has come from hundreds of uh, thousands of years bringing that record to us and so it causes people to say, and I think rightfully so, the earth isn't young. But we would have to ask the question, when Adam was made, how old was he? Well, the obvious answer is a minute. When he was a minute old, he was made a minute ago. But what did he look like? He looked like he was 35. And if you asked a scientist to examine Adam a minute after he was made, you can't say that the scientist is an idiot when the scientist says, oh, he's 25. He's got a full beard. Had to have time for that beard to grow. You just have to know that God did something miraculous. And so when God created the universe, did he create all of these lights and the records that are in them? And if that's the case, if they're made up by God, then is it deceptive? Here's what I think. And what I think about science and math might not be anything that you're interested in, but I do think there's some insight here. I think that God shook out the universe and it happened at such an incredible expanse. And when they talk about the Big Bang and the Big Bang theory, they talk about how fast it would exp- the, the universe expanded. If the universe is expanding that fast, how, how does it change the perception of time? We know that time changes with gravity, with matter. We know that time changes with speed. And so when the universe was created, could there be a sense in which it was created at one point in a few days, and created in another point over billions of years. Because light was moving at such an incredibly rapid rate. There's no way for us to know. Because today, we can't see light traveling, anything traveling faster than the speed of light. But when the universe was made, everything expanded beyond the speed of light. And so what did it do to time when that happened? Because time, the time, space, matter, continuum is all together. So that's my thinking with it. I I never concern myself with trying to argue with somebody about the age of the earth. Uh, if, if you put a gun to my head, I'm going to say a literal five days. That's where I lean. But I'm never going to argue about it. And I'm not worried about it. Because I don't think I have to come back to trying to make it a literal time when they look at the world around them and because of the stars, it looks older. I just say, okay, but let's talk about evolution. Because evolution most definitely doesn't have any evidence. You can see where something looks like it's older to a certain degree, but evolution has absolutely zero evidence. I've still to this day said years ago, uh, if you have evidence for evolution, I wanna hear it. If evolution is true, I wanna know. Instead of just saying it's true and every scientist believes it. Well, good, if it's true and every scientist believes it, then you'll be able to explain to me the, the evidence. And don't say something like, you know, long neck giraffes could reach food and the short neck giraffes died out. Bingo. That's that's evolution. That's not evolution. That is um, that is kind of natural selection at work, selecting those with longer necks, but they're still giraffes. doesn't change them into some other kind of creature. And you have to have all of these years to be able to do it. Uh, and m- more years than... What I think the universe even has available, so they have to try to they have to try to expand it some way, and so they try to talk about seeds being planted. The Earth isn't old enough for evolution to have had enough years to be able to take place. There are evolutionists who are arguing that evolution, the way it's been taught, can't possibly be true. So um, that's where I want to that's where I want to argue. That's where I want to talk about. I want to talk about evolution as far as the age of the Earth goes. If God made it to look older, like He made Adam to look older, why would I spend my time arguing with them about it? Now, a astrophysicist may think differently about it. They may spend time talking about the age of the Earth from other evidences, um, and I've I've seen some of those arguments. Uh, they're just not they're just not easy for me to grasp onto, and I don't want to try to persuade someone because God could have made. To God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So God could have been very patient in his creating the universe. And that's true. And this is definitely a secondary issue. The age of the earth, it's not a, its not a, you know, die on this mountain kind of an issue. It's a secondary issue. It's an in-house argument, we call it. Well, in-house debate. Everybody's Christian who's involved in it. And, and that's really important to understand. All right, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Jari, for your question. Uh, we have a question from Rakiah. Rakaya good to have you here with us. Um, Hi, Pastor Robert. I've been reading about Israel Shemitah, Year's Festivals, based on Exodus 1, Nisan, April is the first month. What, um, what are most uh, recognizing Rosh Hashanah as the first month? Why are most recognizing uh, Rosh Hashanah as the first month? So, Rekwai, I need to admit my ignorance here when it comes to all of the feasts. So, there are seven feasts that you have each year. There are three that are in the spring, four that are in the spring, and three that are in the fall. And I'm not sure which one Rosh Hashanah is. I know the first one is in the spring and in the month of Nisan, the 14th of Nisan to be specific, because that's what the Bible has to say. Uh, And that is Passover. So Passover is on the 14th of Nisan. Then the next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they have no unleavened bread and don't eat it for seven days, starts. And then you have the first fruits, the early first fruits, which is the wheat offering that was on the day after the Sabbath. That's the day Jesus rose from the dead and became the first fruits of our salvation, of the resurrection. And then 50 days later, you have the day of Pentecost, which um, celebrated the the first fruits of the barley harvest. So the wheat harvest was 50 days before that, and the late harvest was the barley harvest. And so they celebrated the barley harvest by giving a wave offering to God. Then you move off into the fall, and you have the Feast of Trumpets, which may be Rosh Hashanah. I, again, I... I can look at these things and then, you know, forget them a few minutes later. Um, But you have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so these all are in the fall. And because the Feast of Trumpets has a trumpet in it, people often believe that that is the return of the Lord. And because Jesus fulfilled the first four feasts when they were done, and, and Pentecost brought the Holy Spirit, they believe that Jesus is gonna return in September. Um, and that's why God says no one knows the day or the hour. I think that the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour because that's was an, an idiom in their day, that you don't know when it happens. Jesus said, you don't know when I'm returning, so be ready. And we don't know when he is returning. So I'm, I'm just gonna look at your question here again, Rakiah. Maybe you wanna rewrite it out and I can take a look at it again. Uh, but you've been reading about the festivals, and um, I think that Nissan falls in March and in April. That doesn't fall in the exact same months that we have. Remember, theirs was a, is a lunar calendar, so they're looking at the rising of the moon and the setting of the moon there, uh, for their lunar calendar, and that's how, where they come up with their months. Um, and so is Rosh Hashanah in the first month, and it it depends on what Rosh Hashanah is. Um, let me just take a let's just take a look. Here's here's what I would do. What is the feast of Rosh Hashanah? I know you guys are screaming at me there. Rosh Hashanah commemorates a certain world, the uh, beginning of the ten-day uh, ten-day period of repentance that culminates in the Yom Kippur holiday and the Day of Atonement. So that's going to be in that's going to be in the fall. That's not going to be in the spring. So as I understand it. Okay, and again, if I'm wrong, just yell into, you know, whatever you're watching. However however you're watching this about how wrong I am. But I believe that Rosh Hashanah would be in the fall. All right, thanks for Again, not an expert on the Jewish holidays. Um, Jesus does fulfill them and they speak of him. Taught through them, through the Old Testament on on several occasions, um, but certainly not an expert on uh, the Jewish holidays. There's some very powerful stuff that's there. All right. So we have a question from Matt uh, Crossman. Thoughts on the Jesus Revolution movie? Thank you. I appreciate that opportunity to be able to talk about it. Um, yeah. So I went to go see it on um, let's see s- s- Monday night. Monday night. We went to go see it, and um, I thought it was good. Um, I I think, and I'm really glad that they portrayed Lonnie Frisbee the way that they did. And if you have- the movie, Jesus Revolution. It's Greg Laurie's testimony. That's what the movie is. Uh, Greg Laurie, if you don't know who he is, look him up. God blesses him in a powerful way. He does the Harvest Crusades. Um, He's been a Calvary Chapel pastor. When I first became a Calvary Chapel pastor, he was one of the main speakers that would speak at the conferences. Almost every conference had Greg Laurie, Mike McIntosh, Don McClure, uh, and, um, and uh, Pastor Chuck and Skip Heitzig. Almost all of them had them speaking at it. And I loved being young, hearing what Greg. Greg Laurie is, I think, eight years older than me. And um, I was 25 when I became a pastor. He'd been a pastor since he was 19, and he was in his 30s at that point. And I learned so much from him. And I love that this testimony is about him. It's not really about the Jesus revolution per se, but it was during that time that he got saved and met his wife, and it's got, it's just a testimony. It's compelling. It's a compelling uh, account of how he got saved. But in that, you have the beginning of the Jesus movement, which is Lonnie Frisbee coming down from Haight-Ashbury. Lonnie Frisbee had been a, uh, a hippie who had gotten saved and was spreading the word of Christ. And Lonnie was a complicated individual, it's been said, like a Samson. He had great strengths, but he also had great, um, he also had great failures. And there's, hey, look, I think that any of us could have been caught up in the failures of Lonnie had we been there at that time. Lonnie himself says, Lonnie has a a book um, that he wrote his biography in. And you get Lonnie talking about his own life. And he says, I was never a homosexual. He certainly dabbled in it as a hippie and in his backsliding in the 80s, he may have also dabbled in it, but he was never an outright homosexual. He never considered himself to be gay or to be a homosexual. As a hippie, they had he had tried everything and then got saved. And I don't know of, and I've never heard anybody say that he was partying one night and preaching the next day. I've heard that accusation today, but I don't know that that was true or not. Um, but Lonnie was very charismatic uh, and God used him in powerful ways, and uh, gave a, a prophecy to, to to Greg Laurie that he was going to be used, speaking to thousands of people, and that certainly had, had become true. Um, I have God using a prophecy in my life. Um, the The character of Chuck, uh, Kelsey Grammer, gr- good actor, right? But but nowhere near as charismatic as Pastor Chuck. And if you know, if you're familiar with Pastor Chuck and the way that he taught, especially back in the 70s and 80s then you know that there was an edge to his teaching. And I'll tell you what, you can go on and you can watch videos of Chuck teaching the hippies. They've got video from that time. And these kids are riveted on what Chuck has to say. And I can tell you from being there when Chuck taught that, People were were caught by what he said. What he said was very powerful. He was a very charismatic person. He was a dynamic speaker. He taught through the word of God, which only a handful of people were doing at that time. Him and J. Vernon McGee going all the way through the Bible. And it became very powerful. And so they don't really cover the teaching of Chuck Smith. Uh, They kind of instead cover, you know, Lonnie coming in and Chuck struggling. And Chuck said that he struggled and he was with the Foursquare Church before he took over Calvary Chapel, and then Calvary Chapel took off, and it took off in the Jesus movement, and um, a lot of those hippies became pastors. Like I said, Mike McIntosh, um, I think Raul Reese was a little bit older, maybe not considered to be a hippie, um, but man, God used um, these guys in strong ways, and he used them in strong ways in my life, and it was fun to watch the movie and see it, being connected to it. I had the privilege to be able to know Pastor Chuck to be able to spend some time with them. We host the Calvary Chapel Southwest Pastors and Leaders Conference. Chuck used to pastor in Tucson when he was, um, one of his first pastors was here. And he had a fond place for Tucson in his heart. And he would come out to our conferences. Um, I was able to spend a lot of time with him. Uh, Also being on the planning board for the senior pastors conferences and being able to sit down with all of these guys and talk with them was great. So seeing the connection and seeing the movie, I thought was really, really good. Um, they did a good job at putting it together. I don't know that they would get everything exactly right. I was talking to another one of my friends who's also a Calvary Chapel pastor, and we were talking about a few things they didn't quite get right. Um, But I think that probably, and I think you'll agree with this as well, that's just nitpicking on our part as people that are very familiar with something to hear the way that they would do it. Um, There is also a movie on the life of Lonnie Frisbee, a documentary on the life of Lonnie Frisbee, and if you guys, and and um, I don't know what the documentary is called. Let me just see if I can look that up really quick. Documentary of the Life of Lonnie Frisbee. I think it's Confessions of a Hippie Preacher or something like that. Um, um, let's see. Yeah, I can't... Um, can't see it right away. Life and Death of a Hippie Preacher. That's it. Um, so there is a, you can you can see it on Amazon and it's called The Life and Death of a Hippie Preacher and it goes over the life of Lonnie Frisbee and it's really good. And um, it, it came out years ago and that's something for you to watch if you really like the Jesus Revolution. Um, I'm not sure that they treat Chuck or Calvary Chapel completely well in that movie, but I think it's a really good connection to how Lonnie was used and um and where Lonnie was at. So if you want to m- know more information about him, then that's a good documentary to watch, The Life and Death of a Hippie Preacher. Um, and you can watch that I think on Amazon. All right. So um hey, I appreciate Matt being able to talk about that. If uh you have a question, if you're joining us for the first time, glad to have you here. If you have a question Write the word question, and then write out your question. Reread it a couple of times make sure it makes sense. Put any Bible references with it that we might be able to take time to look them up, and we will take time to go through uh, your question. All right? So thanks, Matt. I appreciate that, being able to talk about it. Go see the movie if you haven't seen it. Uh, It is really good and really shows how God moves and what God does. All right? So we have a question from Dan. Dan, good to see you. Have Good to have you here. I see this is a Facebook that's in, so that's good. Maybe we got our Facebook stuff working again. Um, question, I have a friend of mine that tells me all the time that I need to go to church every time there is a church service. I watch online, yet I am called a heathen for not going all of the time. Pastor, can you shed some light on this for me and tell me what the Bible really says about this? Yes, Dan, I can, I can help you, all right? Um, you just, you need to look at your own heart and, and I'm not telling you to search your own heart, but look at your own heart and compare to what the Bible says about not neglecting the gathering of yourself together, as is the habit of some. Are you neglecting the gathering together? Are you gathering? Are you involved? Do you have friends who are a Christian? Have you, t- had you gone out of your way to make friends at Calvary, uh, at the church you attend, if it's not Calvary? Have you made time to do that? So your friend is wrong, okay? If your friend says this, and if you're representing him correctly, I have a friend of mine that tells me all the time I need to go to church every time there is a church service, that's just wrong. For one thing, we have four services on a weekend, and they're all the same. So you'd be coming to, and you couldn't even go because they're simultaneously. Worship is going on on one while I'm teaching at another, and then we drive over to the other and do that. So there's no way you could do that. But even if, let's just say, he, he wanted you to go to two services. We have two services on each of our campuses. He wanted you to go to those two services. You don't have to. And you don't have to go to the Wednesday night. You need to be edified and seeking God um, and finding the balance of how you can be involved in church. Um there's so many different opportunities. There's men's groups. There's small groups. There's um, there's uh, ways in which you can serve, that you can be involved in, that will help you get connected. Um, however, I would be afraid that someone might hear me say that and then not be involved in the church. That You wouldn't find exactly what the church is saying. Don't use it as an excuse to not be involved, but... Um, you might just want to say to whoever this is, when they tell you, you got to be at church every time the church is open, just say, you worry about yourself. Remember that video, of that little girl? She's putting her seatbelt on in the back. Somebody's trying to help her. She's like, you worry about yourself. You worry about yourself. Um, judge yourself. And then we won't need to be judged, Jesus said. And we want to make sure that we're involved the way we should be uh, within church. But being there every time the church doors are open, no. And I don't know, does he have a reason for saying that? Is there some, maybe some struggles that you're, you have, Dan, that he would say that with? I don't, you know, you don't know all of the information, but just taking what you're saying here, no, it's, it's definitely not true. Um, but you do need to be involved in the local church. Be involved in a church and growing. Don't neglect the gathering of yourself together, as is the habit of some. All right. So, we have a friend from Timothy. Uh, Timothy, good to see you. Good to have you here with us, by the way. Says, hi, Pastor Robert. A friend of mine is arguing about Mark 16.3. Says the stone was covering the tomb when Mary got there, but the other gospels say the stone had already been rolled back. Uh, He calls this a contradiction. I disagree with him, but wanted to see what you think. Yes, thank you. And I V- pretty sure we're we're going to disagree with him as well. Um, so, let's go to Mark, um, what was it, Mark 16.3? Let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you, and we'll take a look at it here, all right? Uh, so, in Mark 16.3, it says, And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb with us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, for it was very large. Now, if he's saying that the stone was there when Mary Magdalene got there, he, here's what we don't know. We don't know how exactly the women made their way there. There's some, we can make some suggestions. We can say that all the women came at first. When they looked, they saw the stone had been rolled away, and so they dispatched Mary to go get Peter and John. Peter and John ran to the tomb. The women had been gone by then, and Peter and John did their thing, and then Mary Magdalene comes back to the tomb, and remember, she comes after P- Peter and John had been there, so the women have already been there, Peter and John have been there, and now Mary Magdalene shows up, and the, t- the tomb is definitely not closed then." These women, it says right there in the passage, they're worried about who's going to roll away the stone, but when they get there, the stone is already rolled away. So let's just take a look again at your question. Let's see where we're at. I think we're here. Yeah. Let's take a look again at your question. I, Pastor, I have a friend of mine who's arguing that Mark 16 says the stone was covering the tomb when Mary got there. It does not say that. So just taking him to the actual text and reading him the context helps to understand it doesn't say that, never says that. Mary got there after everybody. When the women were on their way, the very first ones to show up at the tomb, they were worried about the stone being over it, but the stone had been rolled away by the time the women got there, the very first women. So there is no contradiction about the stone being rolled away, okay? And and again, this this is a good opportunity for us to see how we can look at things through the lens of scripture. We look at what the Bible has to say, And then we ask, is that indeed a contradiction? And you look at it in context. The very next verse says it had already been rolled away by the time that they had gotten there. All right? Um, And I can tell you that a lot of work has been done in harmonizing the Gospels and the events that happened on that morning uh, and and other places in the Bible. There is a fallacy that if I say... um, we had our boat come off of our, our truck on, the, on a trip up to Powell. And if I say, I was on my way, I tell a friend of mine, I was on my way to Powell and the boat came off of the, the, the truck and it was very scary, life-threatening, and, and praise God that he, he, saved, uh, he saved me. And then later on he finds out that my wife was with me. He says, I thought you said you went, but you and your wife were together. Well, I was accurate in saying that I went. Did I give him all of the information? No, I could have said we but I said I. So when you say I, it doesn't exclude a we. You may have had four people in the car, but you only said that you and your wife went. And so when you get other information, it doesn't make it wrong. And this is really important to understand. And this is what people try to do. They try to say, well, the Bible says there were four women going to the tomb. Then John says Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. But it doesn't exclude the other part. He was writing what he was writing because the other authors had already written what had been there. And the fact that the, the authors of the Bible are not trying to harmonize it is, is, is a powerful evidence for the truth because they're not trying to fix what could look like a contradiction. And then when you go back and you look and you go, well, this could have happened and that happened as well. So why would we say it's a contradiction if that's the case? All right, so um, reminder, Paul says, um, in the comments section you said uh, that you would talk more about my question on playing the stock market. Thank you, Paul, I appreciate that. Yeah, I didn't want to spend a lot of time writing out a lot of information on there. And I'll start off by saying, I am not a stock consultant. I'm not the guy that you want to be taking financial evidence from, I mean, financial advice from, or financial evidence, whichever the one would be. Um, However, I do think there's some biblical principles that are really important for us. Uh, The Bible says that money made easily makes wings and flies away. And playing the stock market is a problem. If you're trying to get rich by playing the stock market, you're probably going to get burned. Because nobody knows which way the stock market's going. Now, over time, the stock market goes up. And so those who cost average in and cost averaging in just means that every couple of weeks you buy some good solid stocks. You want to buy stocks that are making money. This is really important. Don't buy a stock that hasn't made money. Make sure they're making money. This is, this is how, um, uh, gosh, what, who, who is it? Who owns, um, birth star Hathaway, um, but anyway, buy Coke, buy blue chip stocks. Um, and this is not a suggestion to buy it. I'm just saying these are good stocks that pay dividends, that make money, like AT&T, like ExxonMobil. I'm, again, I'm not telling you to buy these stocks. I'm just telling you those are good, solid stocks that make money, that pay a dividend, and you cost average into them, meaning every couple of weeks you buy a share or two, whatever you can buy. And you do that always. And if the stock market's down, you might buy a couple of them. The stock market goes up, you might skip it. But you're looking to cost average in, and since over time it goes up, then you should be okay. And if you're cost averaging in, you don't go in and buy a bunch of stocks and then the stock market crashes, now you've lost all your money. Instead, you're cost averaging in, so when it goes down, you're buying them down here, and then it goes goes up, you're buying them up here as well, and you're gonna end up being able to use it as an investment. So there's nothing wrong with investing. There's everything wrong with trying to get rich quick from the stock market. And I, um, I hope that makes sense. And I think that there are biblical principles uh, that are here. You want to be wise with the money that God has given you. You want to bless people with it. Uh, you do want to invest. I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with investing. We're, we're still living our lives for Jesus today in doing so. But playing the stock market's a problem. People who play the stock market get burned. Even professionals get burned. And so don't don't try to do that. Yeah, there are a lot of mistakes uh, that are made when people are trying to um, trying to play uh, the stock market. All right. Hopefully that answers your question about investing. and about uh, exhaust my knowledge of investing anyway. Um, so uh, we have uh, a follow through here, a follow up here from Requiah. Requiah says In essence, I wonder about why Israel celebrated the new year in September, even though God clearly says in Exodus 1 it should be Nisan April. I just hoped you had some insight. I see. Um, So is Yom Kippur a celebration of the new year? Let me see if it is. Um, Is Rosh Hashanah the celebration of the new year? Talking into my phone, for those of you who are are listening to this on the podcast, Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish new year. It is one of uh, Judaism's uh, holiest days, meaning head of the year the first of the year. The festival begins on the first day of this word, the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, uh, which falls during September or October. So there it says, the seventh month. So head of the year or first of the year. So could it be, um, let me just, I'm just going to throw out there a couple of thoughts require. Could it be that they're celebrating the head of the year or the first of the year at the harvest, because that's giving them their stockpiles for the rest of the year. We know it's seven months into the new year, and that Nissan is the first month of the first year. But could they be celebrating it because you have your the, the harvest taking place um, in the fall after the spring? Um, just don't put too much stock on that, okay, Requia? Um, As I said, I'm not an expert on it. I think that's a great question, by the way. Why are they celebrating? What would be a celebration for the new year meeting head of the year or first of the year? The festival begins on the first day, the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, which falls during September, October. Yeah, so um, those who understand it, I guarantee you, Requia, they're they're wanting to be on here right now so they can explain exactly what it is. Um, if I remember, and I'm going to try to, uh, I will see what we can come up with. Um, Susan says here, Rosh Hashanah is the seventh month. When the calendar words were changed, even we called those who kept the old way April Fools. Nissan is the first month. Yeah, so i not sure where that context is um, there. All right. So, ah, uh, all right, so prayers for this uh, storm coming. So I guess we've got a, you know, cold day tomorrow, right, all across the United States. So yeah, we want to pray that God would uh, keep people safe during that. Yeah, we even have snow. Uh, my app says there'll be snow in Tucson, uh, which happens every I don't know so many years, and so um, we're supposed to have snow. Well, at least it's snowing in our valley. Um, let me see what Tucson says. Uh, Yeah, it doesn't show snow in uh, Tucson uh, for tomorrow, but it does show overcast. But yeah, there is a huge storm coming in. And uh, I'll say an amen, um, uh, Crush. Yeah, I'll say an amen to your prayer there. All right. Sorry to get uh, your name kind of messed up there. All right. Uh, So uh, if you're joining us for the first time, really glad to have you here. If you have a question, you can put a question mark out or or write a question and then reread it a couple times, make sure that it makes sense, and we'll try to get through it. We've got just a few more minutes here. Um, Question from Henry. Henry says, "Um, What do you do when you have no friends, period, and just can't seem to make any, no matter what you try? All right, Henry. um, Can I, I, I... I would love to be able to sit down and ask you more questions about why you don't have friends. We know this. The Bible says he who wants friends must himself first be friendly. So you want to evaluate that aspect of of your life. Are you turning down opportunities to be able to get together with people? I've had people tell me before, that they're just not making any friends. And then when I start making suggestions about things that they can be involved in, they start making excuses as to why they're not involved in it. In fact, this happened with me not that long ago when I was talking to someone who's just talking about themselves not having friends, and then I started asking them about certain events, and pretty soon they were like, you know what, I wanna talk about this, because there were things in their lives that they had put up as barriers. And so, Henry, I, I would want to find out from you what you're doing to be able to try to make friends. Are you isolated? Are you isolated on purpose? Are you isolated because you have to be? What is the reason you're not able to make friends? It's not just that easy to to randomly take a question like this because there's obviously a lot behind this, right? There's a lot of nuances behind it. You say, no matter what I try, and um, I would I would love to have you. I don't know where you are, Henry, I would love to have you sit down and talk with a pastor, um, about how, how you're making friends, what the, 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 problems are in the way they may be able to give you some insight, uh, to be able to do that. Um, I do believe that God wants us to have fellowship with one another, and it's really important for us to have that fellowship. Um, but without knowing more, there's just no way that I can begin to answer it. There's... Got to be a reason why, and, and you would be able to tell me quickly, I'm sure, if um, we were able to sit down and just talk about that. All right. Uh, okay, so I'm just kind of taking a look at some of the uh, comments that are here. It's good to have you guys here. Good to be able to hang out with you. I do love uh, the chat that we've got going on here. We have a question from Psychman. Psychman says, um, question, is faith without works dead because of John 15, 5? Because such a relationship will always produce works. Faith without works, is faith without works dead? Um so that's James right so James says faith without works is dead James says show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works he wasn't trying to come up with a work based religion he was instead saying that there's going to be evidence or fruit that is going to be in your life if you have a genuine relationship with him and so John 15 15 let me go and put this up on the screen thank you psych man for your question Put this up on the screen and see if we can connect it to what a psych man is saying. Uh, So, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Yeah, yet you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go forth and bear fruit. And that your fruit may remain. You see, there it is. You're supposed to go out and bear fruit. You don't do works to be saved, but you go out and do bear fruit that the fruit would remain. And the fruit that remains and this glorifies God is, is when you're abiding in the vine, right? And this is what he's talking about in John 15. He's talking about abiding in the vine. Um, so whatever you ask my father in my name, I may give you. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. So, um, let me go back and look at your question, it's like Man. Uh, and I think we're here. We're we here? No, let's, I'll bring you back in here. Okay. Uh, faith without works is dead because, John 15, because such a relationship will always produce works. Um, and I would use the word fruits instead of works. But John um, James didn't. But James was dealing with people who were saying they didn't have to do anything and... There's going to always be evidence in our lives. And Paul was fighting people who were trying to become legalistic and saying that you're saved by doing some kind of work. So I like to say that, that they, they weren't battling each other. They were standing back to back battling different enemies. And they would both agree wholeheartedly with what the other one said. Uh, they are complementary to each other and not contradictory to each other. All right. So Paul uh, is quoting uh, Zachariah: don't despise small beginnings for the Lord rejoices in the beginning of a work. And I, I love that verse and how important to remember when you're beginning to do things uh, for the Lord. So we have a qu- question from Kara. Kara says, um, in 1 Corinthians 12, gift of the Spirit, nine are mentioned. God seems to work in threes, sevens, tens, and twelves what are your thoughts? Um, all right, well, let's just think about these numbers. So three is a biblical number, right? The Trinity, and you find three often in the Bible. You often find one in the Bible as well. God, There is one God. Seven, the number of completeness. Tens, um, I'm sure if I thought about it, I'd be able to come up with examples of tens. Twelves, obviously. 12 tribes of Israel. Um, yeah there's there seems to be some connection to numbers in the Bible. I think I would start with one, three, seven, twelve, forty. I think those are the ones that I would I would see we see come up again and again and again. And out of those, seven is the, the one that comes up the most. The number for completeness or the number for God. Um, I don't put a lot of stock in numerology in the Bible. I'm not always looking to try to connect the number. Um, I know the 153 fish that were caught has some kind of calculation that puts them into a perfect triangle, which is interesting, but I don't know what that means. Um, and why why 12 sons of Jacob and, and, and why 40 days of rain and 40 years of the wilderness? So these numbers that do continue to come uh, up again and again, and um, I do know that there are certain mathematical equations that work out in our in our universe, and I don't know how much they work out in the Bible. There have been books written on numerology in the scriptures. I don't know if any of them are good. I wish I did, um, but I um, very rarely ever suggest a book. So if I suggest a book, it's because I've known it, I've read it. Um, but uh, it's, an, it's an interesting question. So, um, Russell has a question. Uh, Russell says, is it a sin to question God? All right, thanks, Russell, for your question. This will be, maybe it'll be our last question for today. We'll see. Um, if 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 it's a sin to question God, then Jesus on the cross sinned because Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was fully human, fully God, and in shock, probably, from being beaten all night, from being scourged, from being crucified, and and, and was in shock and said, why, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he questions God. It's good to go to God with questions. Um, Job said, if God were a man, I would sit him down and ask him what he's doing, which is a pretty scary thing. When God shows up, God says to Job, I have some questions for you you've been asking me questions. I got some questions for you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? When all the morning stars sung together and the sons of God shouted for joy, Job would be like, um, I don't, I wasn't (laughs) there. You're right. And so, no, it's not a sin to question God, Russell. In fact, I think it's, it's healthy to go to God with your questions and doubt can often lead to finding the truth. When you're doubting something and you want to go and and send, and, and be solidified in it, I know that has been that way with me. When I look at something and I find a doubt and I dive into it, I get a surety that comes out of me finding the evidence that comes through it. So questioning God is not a sin. If it were, then Jesus would have done it on the cross, and so we can go to Him. Now we want to be respectful, right? And but we can we can be heartfelt. We can pour out what we're really feeling to God and let him know, but we are talking to the God of the universe, and we are talking to the one whom we will answer to, and so we want to make sure uh, that we're respectful in questioning him, but we can uh, question him, and it's not a sinful thing to do. Um, It's not sinful to say why. I've had those times in my lives personally where I, I don't know what God's doing, and I've said, "Why? Why are you? Why are you doing this? Do you really love us?" Um, I've had that question of God in my grief after my late wife passed away. Uh, I do you really love us? Would you allow us to go through this? It's just very real. It's a very real human thing to do, and 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 we are human, and God knows that we're human. All right. So, uh, good to have you guys here today. Good Q&A, good questions. I appreciate that. Um, again, I appreciate you guys. Uh, good to see you uh, here. I'm just looking at the, the very end here. All right. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know that I would share. Yeah, I don't know that I would share phone numbers on in chat rooms. Um, anyway, um, we'll let Keith take care of that, uh, you guys. Um, but, Uh, Stay safe during the cold, all right? Love Jesus, uh, love God, love the people around you. Demonstrate your love by by serving people around you. Do the things that God's called you to do um, and study God's word and be in love with it. Uh, Find yourself in fellowship uh, with other believers and other Christians, all right? I'm out. God bless you guys. Love you. We will see you next time. We'll have our next Q&A, Lord willing, on Saturday. All right, God bless you.